Welcome to the BPA University podcast. This episode, Newsstand Sales During COVID-19 and Beyond, was originally broadcast on October 22nd, 2020. For more BPA University podcasts, check out iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your shows. Uh, today's session is new stand sales during COVID-19 and beyond. Uh, so I'd like to start by welcoming all attendees and uh, thanking our panelists for sharing their time and expertise with us. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Tim Keo. I'm based in Toronto and I oversee the operations for BPA Worldwide throughout Canada. Uh, today's topic, new stand sales during COVID-19 and beyond, will also include an overview of the federal government funding programs available to Canadian publishers. And this marks our 26th webinar, 26, uh, as part of our series of Coping with Corona in Media, which has since morphed into our BPA University series. Uh, our panel this morning is composed of three industry experts. Uh, the first to be introduced is Melanie Rutledge. And Melanie is Executive Director of Magazines Canada and has served in this role for more than two years. Uh, before this, she also served as the Association's Director of Government and Industry Engagement. Uh, Magazines Canada protects and supports the interests of Canadian consumer magazine and business publication media with a notable emphasis on government relations. And I think once we get to uh, the point where we hear Melanie speak this morning, I think it will become quite apparent why government relations is such a key part of what Magazines Canada does uh, for their members. Uh, Melanie joins us from her home office in Ottawa. And welcome, Melanie. Thank you. Craig Sweetman is owner and founder of CRS Media Consulting, which he founded close to eight years ago after serving as an executive at Coast to Coast Newsstand Services, now known as Comag. CRS Media Consulting was founded to serve publishing clients in the areas of newsstand circulation and consulting, cover design, and development. He's chair of the Industry Action Group, seeking growth solutions to the newsstand industry. And he's also chair of Circulation Marketing Advisory Committee, uh, otherwise known as CMAC, which is an advisory committee to Magazines Canada. And Craig joins us from his home office in Toronto. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. Gary Lynch is president of Magazines and Book at Retail Association, otherwise known as MBR. MBR is a US-based association serving the book and magazine retail industry fostering innovation in the supply and distribution of magazines and books. He also serves on the Industry Action Group and prior to joining NDR, had worked at Wegmans. Jerry joins us from his office in Rochester, New York. Welcome, Jerry. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, so before I get to uh, this morning's, uh, or go through this morning's agenda and we start our, our uh, material, uh, going through our material, I thought a good place for us to start is for each of the three panelists uh, to just quickly state how they are faring uh, through COVID. Uh, so perhaps, Melanie, if we could start with you, followed by Craig and, and Jerry. Sure. Well, um, thanks again uh, to both Glens uh, and thank you, Tim. And uh, good morning, everybody. It's uh, And it's great to be here with you, uh, Craig and Jerry. Um, so thanks to BPA and CCAB for the opportunity. 
Um, I think it goes without saying um, that the media sector in general and uh, certainly the Canadian magazine publishing sector for the purposes of this discussion um, was a really heavily disrupted sector uh, prior to COVID, right? Um, we all know this. Um, we've been living through uh, transition and evolution and challenges in this sector uh, for um, over a decade, really. So. I think a really important point to remember is that the, the sector was already heavily disrupted uh, pre-COVID. Um, a lot of the trends and challenges that we were dealing with have been accelerated by COVID for sure. Um, and when we get out the other side of this thing in, into recovery, whatever that's going to look like, um, the sector's still going to be heavily disrupted. So. Um, we, you know, this manifested right at the beginning of the lockdown back in mid-March um, with a, a swift and, and ruthless decline um, in virtually every single revenue channel that the sector relies on. Um, advertising revenue, for sure. Um, some of our members, uh, we were down, you know, 70% in ad revenue right from the very beginning. Um, but subscription revenue, uh, in-person event revenue for those brands that have diversified into the live event space. Obviously, it's it's been a disaster. Um, and newsstand revenue as well because of the lockdowns and um, consumer fear um, that persists um, in terms of just going, going back out there and shopping. So at Magazines Canada, we knew that we needed to do something swiftly and quickly to shore up the revenue side of things for our members. Um, especially when you have no relief on the expense side of the ledger either. Um, so that's what we did, and I'll be speaking um, about that in more detail in a few minutes. Thank you, Melody. Craig. Uh, thank you, Tim, and good morning, everybody. I'm happy to be here and uh, with Melanie and Jerry, and thanks to both Glenn's as well. Um, overall, my business has fared fairly well, but it has been a very challenging period. Um, as Melanie mentioned earlier, uh, the, bigger, the biggest uh, decline overall has been in the advertising sector. It has come back somewhat for my clients. Uh, it is improving, but it is still a challenging period. Um, Newsstand sales, as you'll see uh, a bit later, have come back fairly strongly, uh, specifically in, in certain chains and certain sectors. Um, uh, but it is it is still a difficult period. Um, but there are there are opportunities, and uh, we're hopeful things will continue to improve. Okay, great. Thanks, Craig. Jerry. Good morning, everyone, and thanks to uh, CCAB and BPA for inviting us here. It's uh, great to work with these folks on this panel, so we appreciate the opportunity for sure. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, when you think about COVID, if you went back six months, seven months ago, and somebody said pandemic to you, you would never have guessed that this is what they were talking about. I mean, the, the uncertainty and the novelty of this is just absolutely amazing. And I think part of the challenge for this industry and other industries, we're not alone in this, is uh, predicting the future. We're understanding what we've just gone through and trying to figure out where we're going. 
that remains a challenge. It remains a challenge in business and just in your own personal life. So I think um, I never thought I'd be doing this kind of a presentation in front of my computer. I had to clean my office, you know, things like that that I never had a plan for. So I think the unpredictability of this and where we're going uh, remains a challenge. Uh, the magazine category in general was challenged coming in. Um, you know, put COVID with it and you're on steroids. It's uh, it's just amazing. Uh, but I think in, inside that, and we'll talk about some of this, I think there's some opportunities and some strengths that the category has to offer. And, and certainly uh, and one thing I think we've all learned is the strength of the people that work in this industry and getting through some of this stuff. So we'll be able to, hopefully we can help you tap into some of these resources and get some ideas as we go through this presentation. Back to you, Tim. Okay. Right. Yeah, thank you, Jerry. So this is, uh, this is our, our outline. And uh, I should share with everybody that the uh, genesis of, of this webinar is rooted in a conversation I had with Craig Sweetman uh, last month. And that uh, conversation dealt with uh, newsstand sales and uh, also the research that Magazines Canada is doing in the newsstand uh, space in Canada. And on the matter of the newsstand sales, when I you know, first asked Craig, how are things going in the newsstand industry? I was just expecting him to say that it has fallen off a cliff or, or fallen through the floor or something to that effect. Um, but it turns out that uh, sales are, are marginally down from uh, the start of this year. And, and overall, considering the circumstances and the environment that we're in, uh, sales overall have been fairly resilient and, and strong in, in Canada and, uh, and the U.S. And so I thought that was an interesting topic to get out to our membership and, and the industry at large. And so that was the point that we uh, decided, well, you know, I think we have a webinar idea here. And that was when we pulled Jerry in uh, to this webinar. And so uh, Craig will be able to comment and speak about uh, the sales experience in the newsstand industry in Canada, uh, while Jerry will be able to speak about uh, the U.S., uh, but both gentlemen will be able to speak about the common set of problems and uh, potential solutions that they see uh, in both markets. They do share that, uh, that commonality there. Uh, we'll also hear from Melanie about her uh, experience with newsstand sales uh, during COVID as well. Um, and on that second point of last month's conversation about the research that Magazines Canada is doing, uh, that was when we invited uh, Melanie to join our, our session. And then I thought, well, if Melanie's joining this session, this is a great opportunity for her to speak about the uh, funding programs and any changes uh, that uh, her association has helped to uh, secure. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, in light of the, the pandemic, uh, we're about six or seven months into this now, at least in, in North America. And, you know, there's a great amount of economic uncertainty a great amount of uh, general uh, malaise that, that all businesses have felt and, and notably publishers. And I think if there's an opportunity for uh, publishers to learn about a lifeline that's available to them, this is that opportunity. And so uh, that was the uh, that was the uh, uh, one of the reasons why we also wanted Melanie to join this uh, this panel. So we have lots of interesting material to get through this morning. Uh, this is the agenda. We'll go through uh, all of these points. When we get to question uh, or sorry, point um, section number five, that's our question and answer section. Uh, as Glenn Schutz had mentioned before, uh, the audience will need to type their questions into the question box. Uh, Glenn will read those uh, questions and uh, we'll do our best to respond to them. Uh, and when we get to sections uh, six and seven, that's when we'll hear from Glenn Hansen, uh, BPA's, uh, BPA's president and CEO. Uh, he, Glenn will comment on future BPA university sessions 
as well as recent posts that he's, uh, he's made. So let's get started. Uh, we're starting with the federal government programs. And Melanie, what can you join us? What can you tell us about, um, about funding? Thanks, Tim. Um, well, Tim mentioned it earlier, and he's 100% right. Um, one of the uh, core services that uh, Magazines Canada provides to um, its 300-odd uh, members uh, clear across the country um, is a, a really steady uh, focus uh, and targeted focus on lobbying. Um, I don't mind using that word. Um, some people think of it as a four-letter word, uh, but it's, it's what we do. Um, one of the main things we do is lobby uh, the federal government to ensure that it uh, maintains policies, programs, and even legislation um, that maintains a favorable uh, policy landscape um, so that our members, Canadian magazine publishers, um, can, can operate um, as successfully as as possible. Um, and you know we're um, we're talking about the Canadian experience. Uh, we're really fortunate here in Canada because we benefit, we do benefit from a lot of government support, whether you're an individual or whether you're a business. Um, and this certainly includes um, if you're a magazine publisher in Canada publishing content of cultural value. So, um, as I said off the top, um, you know, March 16th, I remember the day very well. Um, we, uh, we heard almost immediately from um, a lot of our members. And, and remember that we, our members, we kind of have this kind of national overview of consumer, B2B and trade, and then cultural magazines, small and niche magazines as well. So we do have that scope. Um, and we heard swiftly from everybody um, that, you know, revenues were just tanking um, and tanking swiftly, um, as Craig mentioned, the most severe being on the ad revenue side. Um, so we went directly to the federal government. We are in um, close, close contact with them on a regular basis. Um, and we worked with them to see what could be done quickly with the emphasis on quickly. Um, to help Canadian magazine publishers on their on the revenue side um, because they were seeing uh, they were going through such a difficult time. The other point I want to make here, um, and this is important, is that we, you know, Magazines Canada is the national trade association, and we do have a national mandate. But uh, all the good Canadians in the audience will know uh, that our political structure in Canada is a confederation. Uh, and ironically, but also interestingly, um, that makes federal politics really cool because it's actually the provincial and regional voices um, that, that can play a really important role as well. So to that end, um, we made a very deliberate and intentional strategic decision to um, work collaboratively with the three uh, regional magazine publisher associations that we have in Canada. So we have the Magazine Association of BC, we have the Alberta Magazine Publishers Association, and we have l'Association Québécoise des Éditeurs de Magazines in Quebec. Um, so you had the four associations uh, working um, robustly together, working really collaboratively together. We joined forces uh, and we lobbied the government together uh, for help for the industry. And I do believe um, that having those strong regional voices aligned with the federal voice, um, especially in a minority parliament situation, right, uh, 
And remember that the governing liberals have zero seats um, uh, in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So I think, you know, especially those, those Western voices, um, those, they, they were very, very helpful. Uh, and we ended up being pretty effective. Um, so the government listened and we were able to leverage support for the industry in three key areas. But the, the center of this support, um, it's, it's all centered on one program and many of you in the audience will be familiar with the Canada Periodical Fund. Um, and in particular, um, the aid to publishers component of the Canada Periodical Fund. Um, so this is an annual funding program for Canadian magazine publishers. Currently, it's open to paid and non-paid request uh, titles, so mostly so on the consumer side uh, and the trade B2B side as well. It's administered by the Department of Canadian Heritage, which is a federal government department. Um, the CPF, and you have to excuse me, I'm, we all speak in acronyms here in Ottawa, so I will, I will try not to speak too much in acronyms. Um, the, the CPF has an annual budget of $75 million, um, but it's important to remember that this 75 is actually split between two stakeholder groups. It is split between magazine publishers. It's also split with um, non-daily community newspapers, though. Um, and that's a little known fact. We like to trot around and say 75 million, um, but it's actually 55 million that goes to Canadian magazine publishers, which is the lion's share. Um, and then 20 million uh, that goes to non-daily community newspapers. Um, so this is the, the CPF aid to publishers component is the uh, area that we focused on um, in terms of additional help. Uh, so the first thing we did was we worked with uh, the officials at Canadian Heritage uh, to get the aid to publishers money. So your contribution that you would have received this year, um, we worked with them to get the money out the door as fast as possible. Normally uh, your aid to publishers payment comes to you, you know, summer, sometimes it takes a little longer, it's early fall, um, but we didn't have that much time. Uh, so we were able to work with them and they were able to issue the checks to publishers about six months ahead of time. So you will remember you would have received your checks uh, in the spring uh, versus in the fall. That helped. That was the first thing we did. The second thing we did was convince the government that in addition to your regular aid to publishers contribution payments, um, they needed to give everybody a top up. They needed to give all recipients in the program a, a top up because of the swift and ruthless decline in revenues as we've already discussed. Uh, and they agreed and they, they thought that was a good idea and that top up to the current batch of aid to publishers recipients ended, being, ended up being 25% of your 2020 payment. Um, so you would have received that, um, that money uh, a few weeks uh, after your, uh, your first CPF payment. So that additional money that we were able to leverage totals about $15 million, but we didn't stop there. Um, so for a long period of time, we have Magazines Canada has been lobbying the government to uh, try to convince them to open up eligibility in the Canada Periodical Fund to non-paid, non-request titles. Um, this has been a long standing sticking point 
we have argued that um, these titles produce original Canadian content that is every bit as valuable and excellent and meritorious um, as, as other recipients in the program. Um, and, uh, but it's been a bit of an uphill slog. Um, so I guess you could say that, uh, you know, we saw an opportunity here, uh, but much more than an opportunity, it, 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 it was a necessity uh, because of what was going on with COVID. It was a necessity to go back to government um, and really play that card and say to them, listen, guys, you know, there is a broad swath of the magazine publishing ecosystem in this country that you're not even touching. You're not even addressing it, right? Um, and, and now is the time, um, especially when you think about that 70% drop in ad revenues, non-paid, non-request, heavily ad revenue dependent. I mean, there was, it was clear to us that we, we needed to do something. Uh, so we went to them and said, you know, what can you do for this part of the publishing universe? Um, and they heard us on this as well. Um, and uh, we were very happy that they in fact allocated $45 million in support to uh, non-paid, non-request titles, okay? This, um, this was, they created this uh, exceptional, it's a, you know, when they launched it, it's a, they, you know, it's a one-time exceptional component um, of the Canada Periodical Fund. And that component was called the Special Measures for Journalism component. Uh, and the payments for that component, uh, component went out earlier this fall to everybody who applied. So that brings the total um, uh, additional amount of support for the sector. So this is COVID-19 emergency support, brings it to a total of $60 million. And that breaks out as 45 to the special measures for journalism component and about 15 million uh, in that 25% aid to publishers top up that we spoke about earlier. So if you tack that on to the $55 million um, that we already get in the aid to publishers component, you're looking at a grand total of $115 million in federal government support leveraged for the Canadian magazine publishing sector. Um, so what are the next steps, right? Uh, because we're into this thing, we're into what I think qualifies in many parts of the country and the world as a, as a second wave. Um, we've got the rest of the fall and certainly a long Canadian winter to get through. Um, and then we're gonna look at some kind of recovery um, whenever that comes along. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm, I talk to a lot of members, you know, across the country and in different segments. Um, I'm hearing anecdotally from every single one of them that people are pretty much feeling okay about the rest of calendar 2020, but they're looking into 2021 with a lot of uncertainty um, and a lot of um, questions um, and worry, frankly. Um, so um, the way we get out of this is gonna be entirely dictated by COVID, the evolving public health situation and the economic consequences and trade-offs that, that this brings. So we know, the, we know at Magazines Canada and our members know um, that the sector is going to require more support um, uh, through the second wave, through into recovery, uh, while we hope other revenue channels stabilize. So what are we doing about that? Well, <laughs> we're not resting on our laurels. We continue to lobby the federal government here to, um, in fact, increase 
the budget of the Canada Periodical Fund. So I mentioned that 55 million. Um, we were uh, at uh, an invitation-only roundtable earlier this month with the Minister of Canadian Heritage, the Honourable Stephen Guilbeault. Um, we were uh, invited along with newspapers and, and, and other uh, media associations to give our views um, on what our sector would need um, through the second wave and into recovery. Um, and so it was two-pronged, right? It was to um, absolutely increase the budget of the CPF. Um, and we're also asking the government to permanently qualify non-paid, non-request titles into the CPF. Because right now, you look at that special measures for journalism component, you know, it's a one-time measure. So we're pushing really, really hard uh, to, um, to get those titles uh, included permanently. Uh, as qualifying for CPF support. So um, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, I know we need to move on. Um, I do want to take this opportunity to remind everyone that uh, the aid to publishers application for the next annual funding cycle, so this is for your 2021-22 cycle, um, should be made available any day now. It was, it's supposed to come out this week. Um, and uh, the application will be available to download on the Canadian Heritage website. And you all know that from the, the day they hit the trigger and the applications out there, you've got six weeks to complete and submit it to the department. Um, and I will conclude on um, one last important point that I want to make. Um, and that is that the Canada Periodical Fund is changing. Okay. They are changing gradually how they calculate the amount of a magazine's financial contribution. Currently, as you all know, um, a magazine's contribution is 100% based on print circulation. Going forward and beginning uh, this year, uh, so the 2021-22 cycle that you're all about to apply for, um, a magazine's contribution will gradually shift uh, to be determined based on how much money your magazine spends on the creation of original editorial content okay so the balance the balance between circulation and content is going to gradually shift to more emphasis on content and less emphasis on circulation um, in 2021-22 the financial contribution will still be made up of 85% circulation. So your, your print sales are still gonna make up 85% of your total contribution and 15% of your contribution is gonna be made up on your investment uh, in, the, in the creation of content. So everything that your magazine title by title invests in editorial. So that's the 85-15 split. Um, this transition in the program is gonna happen over a period of four more years. So by 2024, um, the balance between the amount of your contribution based on circulation and the amount based on content is going to be 20%, okay, 20% based on circ and 80%, so fully 80% based on content. Um, you're still going to require an audit, uh, of course, to qualify for the program. Um, but uh, this is um, this is what they're doing um, with the program to um, continue to ensure that it 
stays responsive to the way the sector is changing. Um, and essentially tying the money to content rather than tying it to a platform, recognizing that people are publishing not just in print, but in digital as well. And uh, when we get to the Q&A, um, I'm, I'm happy to uh, go into a bit more detail about that and answer your questions. And uh, that's it for me. Thank you, Tim. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Melanie. I mean, there's some, some good points that you brought up there, and I, I won't be surprised if there will be some questions about what defines the editorial expenses. But uh, maybe one important, actually two, two things to just comment on. I, I do recall from speaking with a number of publishers in the spring that uh, they were quite uh, ecstatic about that 25% top-up that uh, came about. Uh, and they were also quite ecstatic about how the payment of the funds or disbursement of the funds uh, came earlier uh, this year. So that's that's really good work. And I think the other thing to point out uh, that magazine publishers may not be aware of is how well they are, perhaps you could say, overrepresented in the program spending. And so you did make a comment that uh, the magazine publishers received $55 million dollars uh, but that's out of 75 million, and so the remaining 20 is for the paid community uh, newspapers or non-paid, sorry, non-daily newspapers. Uh, so I think overall the magazines are, are are faring very well under that program. So that's uh, that's good to hear. Okay. Well, thank you, Melanie. I'll uh, just jump uh, back to our uh, our agenda here, and uh, so uh, we're now going into uh, to talk about newsstand sales in Canada uh, and the U.S. during COVID as well as beyond COVID. And so uh, we're combining uh, sections two and three together. Uh, these will be handled by primarily by Jerry and uh, Craig. We will hear from Melanie about her experience with uh, newsstand sales during COVID. Uh, and one of the things that I thought would be good for the benefit of this group is for Craig just to walk us through you know, very quickly about how the newsstand industry uh, works. Uh, so Craig and Jerry, I'll hand it over to uh, both of you now. Thank you, Tim. Uh, so this first slide, uh, some of you on the call will probably understand how this process works, um, but just a note here, this uh, this process that I'm outlining here is for traditional newsstand distribution only. Okay, There are some retailers that get their copies in other fashions, but the majority of the industry will get their product this way. So how the newsstand works. Uh, the copies leave the, the plant and arrive at a main carrier or distribution facility. Uh, the copies are then broken up into smaller quantities to be delivered to wholesale agencies or logistics facilities. The copies are then broken up into smaller amounts and merged with other magazine products to create an individual retailer invoice and delivered either by truck or in some cases UPS depending on the type of retailer or destination area. And once the copies go off sale, they're collected and returned to the servicing agency or logistics facility and destroyed. Uh, the copies sold by individual retailer, uh, or sorry, the copy sale uh, is determined in two ways. In the case where the retailer is providing POS or point of sale data, scan data, the copy sold is determined by how many copies are scanned through the retailer's systems and then downloaded to the agencies. Uh, in the case where a PO state is not available, the copies returned are counted and deducted against the copies received to create the net sale for the individual retailer. Okay? And that's about it. Okay, going to the next slide, I guess. 
Craig, I'm sorry, uh, I, I was on mute there, but before I go to the next events, the next slide, can you just comment on the percentage of the industry uh, that is handled by point of sale scan data? I mean, is it 50, 60%? Um, the last figure I saw, were, it's, it depends between the US and Canada, but it's generally above 80% now. Okay, between 80 mm, okay. 85%. Okay, well, it's good to know. Just something to keep in mind because I know that Jerry and yourself will be uh, quoting sales uh, figures, and, and I think that's just something uh, to, to keep in mind. Great. So we're going to talk about um, the where we are today in terms of uh, COVID and some of the impacts. But the impacts of COVID, I think if you all would recognize, uh, most of you have seen yourselves. So what I might be telling you here is nothing new. I think the, the, uh, what the challenge here is to understand or, or try to interpret how that affects the magazine business. But the impacts of this, we find out, are certainly class of trade dependent or were you a classified as an essential business? So consumer traffic was up originally, and you, you probably saw that by wiped out shelves in some of the essential businesses where they had no product. Um, but then there's other ones where it was down. And the this pattern, what we found out, and you'll see in some of the numbers coming forward, <clears throat> has changed. So what we started with is not what we're finishing with. So the challenge for us is where where are we going as this uh, as this progresses and what kind of opportunities does it come up? So think about consumer traffic. Basically, for many magazines, we're very dependent on traffic being seen in the store. So if traffic is up, that's more eyeballs for us to sell to. If traffic is down, that's less. But it's also hard to get your arms around where it's going to end up. So some of the things that are driving this traffic, you know, the fear of running out again. Think think the toilet paper. We couldn't find any. It kept people coming back and back and back again. But then again, a little bit fearful of getting sick. So maybe it kept us away for some retailers. And then, okay, now we're back to somewhat normal, but hey, the second wave is coming or the third wave in the United States will probably have 18 waves, I'm not sure. But all this is hard to get your arms around and think about the replenishment systems that are trying to service this and try to understand you know, where the, where the business is going. Very complex, very hard to understand. And then take it to the consumer side where we have many pantries that are probably overstocked. And will that change this, the flow of traffic going forward? Or if there's a second wave fear, does that make it go back up again? So again, I think that it's hard for businesses to get their arms around exactly where that's going. Again, thinking about class of trade, grocery, mass, club stores, dollar stores, to my surprise, benefited greatly because they were open. So the traffic in those folks really went up initially. And I think you'll see the, the uh, complexity of that traffic uh, changed. But when you think about, and Craig will go into this somewhat, bookstores, convenience market, transit were all hurt, I mean hurt, terribly i mean basically devastated so in where think about where did those consumers go if they really wanted magazines did they want magazines where did they find them and i think we'll see some of those numbers going forward next slide please so surprisingly basket size and traffic are tied together basket size actually increased 
in some of the channels that benefit it. So again, think grocery mass, the, the basket size went up. If you go to where the consumers are shopping, that hasn't exactly settled. So that between mass and grocery, there's all these shifts going on in drug, uh, that's all shifted. So uh, flu shots, big deal. That's driving a lot of traffic into drugstores now. Uh, uh, people replenishing their pantries again, that was a big deal. Now they're loaded, so that changes. What I'm trying to say here is it's gonna be a moving target. And if we're dependent on traffic, that's hard for us. It's important for us, but it's hard for us to understand. And then there are substantial shifts to digital commerce. As I think you well, all well know, uh, a lot of click and collect, a lot of ordering from Amazon and some of the on-site folks all delivered to home. That has changed a lot of the way that we shop. Whether that sticks, we're not sure. And some of it's you know phone assisted. If you think about it, you know how many how many times did I get on this thing and order product, which I would never have done in the past. So again, I think I'm trying to underscore here, all of these trends, you know, may not indeed be trends. They could be short-lived, they could be long. It's gonna be difficult to understand. And again, I would just underscore on the e-commerce side, there's many components, you know, ship directly to home, pick up in-store, pick up curbside. And then there's another component coming out, which is basically, you know, e-commerce assisted. So a lot of times now folks are in the store and they're using their phone to shop with, you know, to find the item, to actually scan it and charge it to their phone so they can avoid the front end. All of these things affect commerce, but they particularly affect impulse categories of which magazines are one. Next slide, please. So what I was able to do is take a look at uh, the Walmart report that came out and it was public data, you can go there and pull this down from their website if you like. But what's interesting, and this is the uh, last 13 weeks ending July 31st, I believe. So basically right in the heat of COVID. Their comparable sales were up almost 10%. Probably not a surprise to you, but what you would be surprised to find out is that their transactions were actually down 14%. That's truly amazing. I would never have guessed that. You know, based on the activity that I saw here locally in retail, I mean, these stores, grocery stores, mass, they were slammed. They had a lot of people going through them, but their transactions were actually down over that 13 week period. Look at the, the comparable ticket. The size of the basket was up by 27%. I mean, that's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And if that includes e-commerce sales, we think that that has something to do with that because e-commerce baskets, if you're going, you tend to make it big. If it's gonna make the trip, you're gonna make it worthwhile to drive up. That may have something to do with it, but we really don't have any insight into that. That's completely conjecture on my part. Let's go to the next slide. Now take a look at the international business and we've got Canada highlighted for you here. Net sales in Canada at Walmart. So we think this is somewhat representative of this, this group of you know grocery mask uh, club stores. Up almost 14% uh, in net sales. Comparable sales were up 14. Transactions down 18%. It's just amazing. And even more amazing is that ticket size almost a 40% increase in the size of the basket. 
I think understanding that as we talk to retailers is kind of critical. Uh, retailers really like basket size going up. It's very important to them because it, obviously there's a little bit less labor in the checkout process. So that's important. They like that. They don't like the transactions are down. That means, you know, basically less customers, you know, long-term that would be a problem for folks. So trying to understand that dynamic is very important. And again, I think look at um, the e-commerce component. It, it says in there, the e-commerce component was led by grocery sales. That does not mean magazines. That's grocery in the strict sense of the word. Why don't we go to the next slide? Craig, I'm gonna let you take this one. Okay. so. Just a note on this, this data is only only for the top 60 retailers. Okay, it's not the whole universe. So top 60 retailers in North America. So if you look at the, the, the top column first, the period here is week one of 2020, and then week 13, which is the start of the pandemic, week 21, which is two months beyond the start of the pandemic, and then week 36, which is basically the end of September. Okay, so if you look at grocery, for instance, down 13% first week of the pandemic, but then two months down the road, it was up 9% versus the first week of the pandemic. And current, current which would be, again, the end of September, uh, down 5%. Now, if you look at, for instance, bookstores, they, they were hammered. Um, First week of the pandemic, down 85%. But then, two months later, when uh, a lot of the Barnes and Noble and um, Indigo chapters were reopened, up 334% versus the first week of the pandemic. But still depressed at the end of September, down 32%. Now, if you look at the dollar stores, that's a that's a uh, a good news story. Uh, they benefited from, from the pandemic, believe it or not. They were up 32% in the first, first, uh, first week of the pandemic versus week one of 2020. Then down only 4% uh, two months later. Overall, up 21% in September versus first week of January. Uh, terminal accounts, they have been absolutely decimated. So this is the majority uh, Majority of the terminals would be airport. There's some ferry terminals in there, uh, bus terminals, et cetera, but the majority of this is airports. So down 96% the first week of the pandemic. No surprise there, I'm sure, to, to anybody. Uh, recovered uh, somewhat two months later, up 167 versus first week of the pandemic. But as of the end of September, down 86. Um, another improved area is home improvement. Uh, people stuck at home, they, they want to renovate, they want to do things at home because they're stuck there. Okay, makes sense. First week of the pandemic up 2%. Uh, week 21 versus 13, two months later up 53%. And then overall up 72% versus week one of 2020. And another area uh, affected by people being at home, it's specialty. So these would be Joanne's stores, Michael's, uh, 
craft stores, people that, that want to do things like that at home. First wave of the pandemic, a lot of them are closed. So that's why it's negative 80 there. However, look at two months later, up 236%. And then overall versus week one, up 6%. So that's a fairly strong area. Craig, and if I might. Grandfather, pardon me. If, ahead, I might, yeah, if I might yeah. say, I think it's important to note here when we look at some of the grocery and mass, uh, although they've, they've recovered somewhat versus week one, I think if you look at the sales that we looked at in Walmart, for example, their overall sales having such large increases, I think the fact that we're not keeping up with that is somewhat reflective of the loss of traffic and being traffic dependent. So, you know, how we work through some of these changes and understand the dynamic that's going on in stores and try to figure out how to take advantage of those will be kind of critical going forward. Thanks, Jerry. So the last point I'll make on here is this is the grand total. And again, remember, this is only a top 60 chain in North America. Okay, so first week of the pandemic down 34%, recovered fairly nicely, up 14%. But overall, at the end of September, down 15%. Okay? Next slide. Okay, so this is, uh, this is just another slide similar. It's just a different type of chart. So this is retail category variance, but it's also year over year. Okay, so it's a different period. So overall industry in, the, uh, in April, obviously right after the pandemic started, the industry was down uh, fairly significantly, okay, down 60. But as you can see, it's recovered fairly nicely as we go forward here into September. And then if you look at the grocery store chains, not as badly hit in the first, the first part of the pandemic. And it, again, recovered fairly nicely. Uh, and it's only down, based upon this chart year over year, uh, about 10. Okay. But if you look at terminal accounts, again, it's just they have been decimated and they have, have not uh, recovered and won't recover. The reality is, and we all know this, until people are willing to travel or feel safe to travel or allowed to travel, that area is not going to recover. Okay. But once those doors are open and people feel safe, I think that area is going to go you know, through the roof because people are just tired of being at home. Okay. Next slide. So this is just uh, airport passenger trends, again, to follow up in the, the terminal area. Uh, this is March 1st to uh, June 14th. Okay, so before the pandemic started, TSA traveled 2 million people. Okay? But as of June 14th, it's down to 500,000. So down, you know, over 75% during this period. Next slide. So if I may, Melanie, was this where you had wanted to comment on your experience of uh, newsstand sales in Canada? Sure, thanks. Um, I'll just, uh, I'll just sure. quickly comment um, and say that, you know, for, so Magazines Canada, um, I think most people know we've uh, operated a um, direct to newsstand distribution service since the founding of the association, in fact, in 1973. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. we've got about, yeah, I know, it's, all, <laughs> yeah, it's impressive. 
um, we've got about, believe it or not, about half of our members, half of our 300 member titles um, are in fact uh, in our distribution service. Um, and of, uh, of that, 80% um, or 80% of those titles, we have exclusivity. So we are the exclusive Canadian distributor for those titles. Um, mostly because these are um, in the category of niche, uh, small um, arts and literary titles, cultural titles. Um, so the retail channels uh, for us are our bookstore, really. Um, and Craig uh, did an excellent job of um, giving an overview of, of what's been happening in that channel. Um, so we have all the Chapters Indigo stores, which is the equivalent to BNN in Canada. Uh, we have some smaller region-specific chains. Think of McNally Robinson uh, in the West, uh, and then we have a, about a hundred retail, uh, hundred account strong uh, channel um, across the country of about a hundred odd um, independent retailers. So these are bookstores. Um, some of them are large, some of them are small. Uh, but I, so at time, as of today, um, so we all know Chapters Indigos are back open again. Um, but a lot of our smaller independent stores, um, we're still waiting for them to come back. Um, so we're probably at about 65, 67% of our accounts open. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, um, as, as Craig and Jerry said at the outset, it is, um, the newsstand experience through COVID really is channel dependent. Thanks. Yeah, that, that's, I think that, that's a good point. It is very channel dependent. I think that that's a story here. And so I, I think maybe just to put uh, Melanie's experience and uh, give some perspective to it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Melanie, but I, I believe that overall Magazines Canada accounts for uh, one or less than 1% of the overall newsstand volume in Canada. And so uh, I think that, you know, primarily what we're talking about here is is what Craig and Jerry are, are speaking about uh, and, and I think to Melanie's point, it is a, a story of how copies were able to go into different retail channels, uh, and she didn't have that luxury because many of her retail outlets were uh, were closed, and sounds like some still remain closed. So, okay, thanks, Melanie. Yeah. Uh, okay, so back to you now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask you one more comment on the airport, uh, the airport area. Uh, so as of that, that oh, slide sure. ended. That slide ended in uh, in June. So as of now, U.S. airport volume still down over 70%, and Canadian volume is down 85%. So still very depressed. Okay. Next slide. Okay. So this slide. So note this is only the top 20 retailers in North America. Again, not the whole universe. But it's, your, it's the same period uh, that I'd noted in, in the previous uh, wholesale category area. So again, this is week one versus week 13 versus week 21 versus week 36. So some of the highlights here, uh, if you look at Barnes & Noble uh, at the top there, they were only at 5% of their volume the first week of the pandemic. They didn't shut down all their stores right away. Uh, week 21, they had some more stores open. They were at 18% of volume. And at, at the end of September, they were at 65% of volume. Um, now, I was on a, uh, a call yesterday, a great presentation by Krifka Steffi of BNN, um, sponsored by Jerry's group. And she's very positive about newsstands. You know, uh, 
she says uh, demand is back, uh, and it was a very positive presentation. Okay, so they, this this is it was at sixty five percent here. They're getting close to seventy percent now in their volume. Okay, um, Dollar General. Again, I've mentioned Dollar Stores before. They immediately were they were above they were thirty two percent higher, especially in the pandemic. And as of the end of September, they're up twenty, you know, up twenty one percent versus week one of the year. Shoppers Drug Mart. That's another good news story. They, and they benefited because they're one of the stores considered an essential service in Canada. Uh, they had a slight drop in the first week, but then as of the end of September, they're up 15% in volume. Uh, Meyer stores, uh, supermarket chain in the States, slight dip in the first week of the pandemic, but they're up 11% at the end of September. And then I've mentioned before, uh, home improvement lows. They have been positive since the first week of the pandemic, and they're up 72% in magazine sales as of the end of September. O'Reilly, uh, the dominant supermarket chain out west in Western Canada, and in September, they're up 7%. Um, so that's all good news. Now, on the, on the negative side, again, terminals, they have been hammered. Right? Charities. Uh, they are down 30, down, sorry, they're up 30% of volume right now. Because they've, they've recovered somewhat, but they're still 70% down. And Hudson, even worse. They're down 87%. But again, once people are willing to fly and are able to fly and travel, those, those numbers are going to be reversed. Okay? But until vaccines are widely available, I mean, that, that's just not going to change. But this time next year, I think you're going to see much more positive numbers coming from that area. Um, last one I want to mention on this, uh, London Drugs. Sorry, just told it there. London Drugs, another positive story. They're the dominant drug chain at West. They're up 23% in the September versus, year, uh, versus week one. And then I just want to make some comments on the left side here. Um, Okay, I want to note here, book sales in non-bookstore retailers in Canada have been up anywhere from 20 to 50, 50% overall year, year over year, with much of that in the chain, uh, sorry, the children's and educational book area. So with kids being at home, having to, having to uh, uh, go to school basically from home, uh, books, book sales have, have gone through the roof. So very strong there. Then again, it shows the strength of uh, print. And Costco US, unfortunately, removed magazines. But in Costco Canada, they are up dramatically in the past month. And one of the uh, initiatives they have started is they have started putting regional titles into uh, into their stores in, in dedicated pockets. And that's have had a very positive effect. Okay. And last note here. Retailers classified as essential businesses remained open throughout the pandemic, whereas non-essential retailers such as specialty, book, et cetera, were negatively affected, right? And that obviously affected their sales. Okay. Next slide.
And I guess that I guess that ties in with Melanie's experience as well, Craig. Yes, exactly. Jerry. Thanks, Craig. So uh, just to add on to Craig's commentary, I think that it says something about the magazine category when we lost these huge uh, channels for us. So if you lose terminals and you lose bookstores and you're still only down fractionally, that says something about you know the resilience of the category. That means that consumers actually did shift to other businesses to find magazines that they would have bought normally in bookstores or in terminals. So while we're still we're still soft in sales, taking those two huge classes of trade out, that'd be, that's tough to overcome. That really is tough to overcome. So again, I think um, trying to understand the dynamics that are at play here and how to take advantage of those uh, remains a challenge for the industry as we go forward. Let's take a look. We're gonna show you real quickly just the kind of the breakdown. This is the breakdown of category sales of business right now as it sits. You can see that SIPs, which Craig commented on before, you know, are doing, uh, you know, the bulk of the work here, you know, higher priced, uh, you know, one, a lot of them are one off kind of issues, uh, certainly have changed the dynamic in the, in the magazine business, probably over the last few years, at least. And you can see, look at the puzzle category, 9%. That's uh, pretty high. So it's something that um, consumers, you know, have, have moved to during the pandemic. And you can see some of the, some of the other categories here. I don't think you're going to see too many surprises, but SIPs might be a little bit uh, new information for you in terms of uh, the percentage of sales. And if you look at weeklies at 22%, that used to be, I don't know, Craig, what do you think? 50% weeklies? It was, it was way up there. Yeah, north of 40 for sure. Yeah. So that's kind of a picture. I think the next slide might be a little bit more... Uh, informing for you and this is some of the changes in sales you know over the period of time since the pandemic came i think if you just spend a little time at this you'd say it's not terribly surprising and you can kind of see the shifts as covid has taken hold or has waned a little bit and again trying to predict where this is going to go as covid changes the, its dynamic and we change to it now uh, it'll be interesting to see so again, the one i would point to is the puzzle puzzle category where you can see in April it really took off and then softened a little bit, you know, either as people had enough puzzles or not sure, but and then you get to September and it's back up again. The other one to note is look at the women's category and you can see that it was down, down dramatically in April, but then it slowly tried to creep its way back, you know, over time. So some of these things are just, you know, trend changes and we'll have to see how it goes as the categories changed and as consumers habits change and as their needs change. If you think about where the consumer is at the moment and what their editorial need is, I think it really, this kind of chart emphasizes where consumers are at and they're, they're you know, they're drifting to what they need at the moment. Uh, and uh, COVID's kind of underscored that, I think for many, not just magazine categories, but other categories within the store. Uh, the, the shifts are uh, pretty amazing. Craig, you have a comment on that as well? Uh, just the, again, um, the strength of the puzzle category and the SIPs, and we'll touch again on the SIP uh, strength a little further on within the presentation. Next slide. I think, Craig, that's going to be yours. Yeah, so this is 
it's just going to show you over the last three years the how much average cover price has increased. And again, follow up in the SIP part, uh, this really speaks to that, to the expansion of the SIPs and bookazines. Um, so between 2020-2017, the average cover price has gone up 23%. All right. And I was on a call with um, Mike Gill and a co-mag last week, and he mentioned that two-thirds of the SIP sale increase in the past year has, has been in the plus $15.99 cover price range. So people are willing to pay for quality content and, and in content they're interested in. Not, there isn't a huge amount of price resistance uh, if, if uh, the consumer is interested in that product. Okay. Next slide. Okay, so this is just a, uh, and these are year-over-year -year sales. Okay. Um, and the period here is the first week of the pandemic, anything that went on sale after that, okay, to the last net sale okay, versus uh, like period and uh, like number of issues prior year. So this will draw some comparisons between uh, the, the sales of the uh, regular issues versus some of their specials. So if you look at house and home here, and, and another point I want to make here is this, some of this was, was imposed upon the publishers by closures by retailers and reductions in draws by retailers, and so it was self-imposed. Okay, so they, they, some of it was, they, they, they wanted to reduce their print runs. Uh, some of it was, and the lion's share would have been uh, retailers opposing this upon them. So if you look at House and Home, their print run during this period is down 35% year over year. Uh, unit sales down 29%, and this is for the regular issues. However, if you look at their special, their draw was down 15%, but their sales are up 55. Okay. In style, uh, down 29 uh, in draw, down 17 in sales. Zoomer down 38 in draw, down 29% in sales. And you like McLean's again, this situation where you, you're, you're comparing the regular issues versus the SIP. Uh, the print run was down 16% for the regular issues, down 27 for the uh, sales for the regular issues. However, your SIP up 16% draw up 3% in sale. And then Sharp's book for men, which is an SIP product, uh, the draw was down 70%, but the sales were even year over year. DC Outdoors, now this, this ties into, I mentioned Costco being regional pockets. So DC Outdoors benefited uh, during this period for two reasons. Even though we cut our draw 33%, our sales were up seven. Partially due to the fact that uh, you had the fishing special going on sale during this period, but that's, that's a regular product year over year, so that's apples to apples. Uh, but the sales were up seven, mostly because of the Costco edition. That really benefited there. And Cottage Life, another great story, down 10% in print run, but up 6% in unit sales. 
that. Next slide. Jerry. So I think the message here that we wanted to, you know, kind of end this piece with is to expect, you know, a lot more changes and challenges. I think as we've laid out here, this is certainly not a straight line and not necessarily predictable. I think the industry uh, was experiencing changes before COVID came in and certainly COVID had the ability to magnify some of these and also minimize some at, at the same time. You know, I think we should expect, you know, some of the changes that are going on to be driven by what, you know, store as operations wants to do in order to handle consumers in a different way. Yeah, Craig mentioned before that uh, Costco in the U.S. had stopped carrying magazines yet in Canada, they're going forward. A lot of that was driven by operations and the, and the desire to try to control what was going on at the back door and the amount of handling they had to do when they didn't have personnel. So, you know, some of these things are driven by outside factors that aren't necessarily reflective on the category per se, or the consumer's desire for the category, but just some of the operational things that are going on as we try to handle uh, COVID. So expect the checkout to be impacted. As you can see here for some of these pictures, you know, think about glass barriers on the checkout. And if you're trying to sell something over the belt in that store, how is that even possible? And if you're standing six feet back from the checkout, you know, we're used to going up and handling a magazine and looking and thumbing through it, that experience is gone. It's just not there anymore. Even though consumers might want to do it, it's not there. Self-checkouts, uh, other categories competing for space, uh, the, the safety protocols that I mentioned, you know, how how is that going to impact what we're doing? One of the things that happened is um, retailers found through this experience of COVID, it put a lot of the, the bottlenecks in, in focus that they had to deal with. You know, if you think about uh, a retailer wanted to make that frictionless shopping, you know, competing with Amazon, so to speak, make it easy. You think about what went on in stores and the lines at checkouts, retailers started to say, wow, this is really a challenge for us. What can we do to reduce that? And oh, by the way, the front end, the checkout experience has always been the number one labor expense in a store. So it just kind of put, again, that focus, can I reduce this? Can I change this experience? And I think what you're going to see, and you have seen already, is a lot more self-checkouts, a lot of, you know, consumers checking themselves out. You're going to see more and more of that as retailers evolve and try to meet their consumer needs at the same time. How we handle that and how we react to that, I don't think can be in the standard way how we would have done it in the past because uh, those spaces in many cases aren't gonna be there. They just aren't gonna be there. Let's go to the next slide. Good news is consumers like magazines. I think as I pointed out, they actually shifted and bought in other classes of trade. We know they like magazines. And if you look at some of the categories that Craig pointed out as showing growth, obviously they like print, they like the category. I think the opportunity in many cases has always been, how do we align our editorial with the consumer's needs and where the retailer is. You know, retailers is a funny place to operate. You know, we have to figure out how to partner with people, partner with our retailers to make sure that we're getting the right magazine in their consumer hands and, you know, our readers' hands at the same time. There's an opportunity, I think, to partner here with retailers, you know, for the consumer. And, you know, side benefit for many of the advertisers that are in these magazines as well. 
there's an opportunity to do combine all of that together in one place. When I talk about directed impulse, what I'm saying is, you know, we used to be dependent on all these eyeballs. We would just have to put a magazine in front of somebody and bingo, it would sell. Now I think people are turning to other, you know, uh, phones and things of that nature to try to make those buying decisions. The path to purchase has changed. Can we get in there so that we're not dependent on the eyeballs coming across our magazine, but people are already thinking about it and are looking for it. Can we direct that impulse? We may not be a completely planned purchase, but maybe we can get a little bit closer to get people thinking about it, or at least putting that notion in their mind that they want that magazine. I think that's you know an opportunity, certainly from a consumer standpoint, but from a retailer standpoint, I think you'd find you know retailers very open to that opportunity. They'd, they'd love to be able to give Con their consumers something that they're looking for, especially something as informative and fun, you know, as a magazine. And I think we have to look for new displays. I think that those, you know, how do we align if the front end is going to change? You know, are those new opportunities going to come to us? And then, you know, finally, again, I'll, I'll harp on this again, e-commerce. E-commerce is a huge opportunity and retailers are going after it, you know, big time. How it shows up in magazines we don't know yet, but part of the problem is we're really not there. You know, our presence in e-commerce is minimal at best. And the chart to the to the right there kind of shows you what's going on with click and collect sales, you know, order online and pull up to the store and pick it up. You can see that in 2020, because of this virus, it's really taken off. Now the rate of growth will go down, but look at the raw numbers that are happening in e-commerce. You know, how do we participate in that? And think of e-commerce a little bit differently and not just, you know, let me get on my Amazon account in order to have it delivered to my home. E-commerce is gonna be, you know, it's gonna, you know, put its fingers into all facets of shopping, I think, and how we can play in that uh, will be, I believe, you know, a huge opportunity for us going forward. And I think one that, you know, as a category, magazines can excel at because of, the, the content that we're selling to consumers and readers. Next. Thank you, Jerry. That's, uh, that's a, I think, a good segue into the uh, next section here of our webinar, uh, which is the update from Craig and Melanie on the research that's presently being done on the newsstand space um, and being funded by Magazines Canada. Uh, so, Craig and Melanie, this is uh, your section to go through. Thanks, Tim. Um, so, I'm going to take the first couple slides and then I'm going to pass it to Craig. Well, gosh, Jerry, you couldn't have set that up more beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Jerry's nailed it. Um, the path to purchase has changed. Uh, and there's no question that there is um, a huge opportunity uh, for magazines in the e-commerce channel. Uh, and we're not there yet, uh, or we're there in, in very small parts of the world in, in, in very small quantities, as, as you'll see as we take you through these last couple of slides. Um, so Magazines Canada, um, you know that we run a distribution service. You know that we are um, it's a core service along with government relations for our members, and you know that we are committed to newsstand. Um, so we are working with the Industry Action Group um, of which Craig is actually the chair um, of the IAG and, and Jerry uh, is a member as well. Um, so we are uh, conducting a feasibility study 
to explore the uh, receptivity uh, of retailers and consumers to extend the sales of magazines into e-commerce channels. Next slide, please. Now, this is kind of old data. Uh, this is from 2018. Um, so I think the trends that you're seeing here um, will uh, probably uh, only have, in, have, have increased. Um, but you can see as of June 2018, uh, you know, a high percentage of folks uh, shopping uh, online uh, in the book category. Books are the third highest there. Um, the category that we're really zooming in on um, for uh, the purposes of this study uh, are food and beverage, so grocery. Uh, and you can see even in 2018, uh, they're on the chart uh, posting double-digit percentages uh, in terms of um, consumers uh, utilizing e-commerce for those types of purchases. Next slide, please. So uh, really, we're, when we talk about grocery, we're looking at major mass retailers and supermarkets. Uh, these are the key players for online grocery alongside Amazon. Uh, and again, you can, this just kind of gives you a sense of the field of play out there. Um, these are kind of the top uh, mass retailer and supermarkets uh, operating in the online space. And again, this is old data, so uh, 2018, so just, just keep that in mind. Next slide. Uh, so, as, uh, as we pointed out, um, in Canada, um, magazines are not currently sold via uh, e-commerce and, and click-and-collect channels. Uh, so, um, we, are, uh, we are conducting a feasibility study. Craig will speak a little bit more about this. Um, and uh, I can give you a timeline on this. We're, uh, we'll be wrapping this up uh, in March of 2021. Uh, and we, uh, again, I, you know, we talk about COVID magnifying and accelerating trends. Uh, I think uh, this is, uh, we're, we're anticipating some pretty exceptional results out of this study. Uh, and uh, the next stage will be how do we implement, uh, how do we advocate, how do we lobby retailers? It'll be another piece of lobbying, I suspect. Um, so very excited to see what the future holds. And uh, I'll pass the next slides over to Craig. So this slide will give you an idea. This is the only retailer in Canada, Grocery Gateway, that currently you know, carries magazines. And our goal is, is to get every retailer to carry magazines in this fashion so that they are, a consumer can click on the magazine and add it to their basket and then go pick it up. Okay. Next slide, please. Let's give you an idea of uh, Europe has a, a wider uh, selection of retailers that do carry magazines online. Tesco is an example. Um, and, and again, this is what we want in, in, in Canada and the US. Um, we want consumers to have the ability to add magazines from the store into their basket and then to go pick them up. Because it's, a, it's, a, it's an untapped market for us. Next slide, please. Okay, so um, the retail interviews, you know, as, as Melanie mentioned, uh, IAG, DIG has, has partnered with um, Magazines Canada 
um, to, to help do this study. And uh, I did want to mention, you know, without Melanie's exceptional help here, this study never would have happened, okay? Um, her uh, ability to, to, to get this money, to have the study done, to benefit the industry, you know, I, I think is fantastic. And uh, beyond that, um, I wanted to mention that her lobbying efforts, and as you mentioned, that's, that can be a, a four-letter word to some people, uh, her lobbying efforts have greatly benefited, benefited this industry, okay? Um, so thank you, Melody. So, as I mentioned, the IG is, is uh, working with, with Melody and her group on this, uh, and Brandspark, who's doing the study. And to date, interviews have been completed with Indigo Chapters, Loblaws, and Save on Foods. And we hope to get interviews with the other major retailers because we need their buy-in to get this, uh, this type of program going. And without them, we, we can't make this happen. And, um, and I also should say that, that uh, TNG Canada has been, uh, uh, has been great in, in uh, trying to uh, facilitate these interviews. So they've been a great partner as well. And uh, again, we need their help to make this happen in Canada. And the quantitative consumer study, I believe, now Melanie, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that has begun. Um, and it, but again, it can't be in person. Right now, it's only by uh, online and uh, phone interviews. But that has begun by BrainSpark. Thank you. Okay, uh, the only other thing I'd mention uh, with that last slide was uh, if you want to refer to the IG, IAG site, you can find uh, a blog piece that uh, we wrote related to this initiative. Okay, so please go ahead if you want and go to the IAG site and you can see that. That's the latest blog piece that's up on the IAG site. And that's it. Okay, great. Well, thank you, uh, Craig, Jerry, and Melanie. Uh, this brings us to the uh, uh, area or the section where we have uh, allotted room for questions and answers. So. Looks like we have about five minutes. Uh, maybe to start this uh, process off, I'll start by asking a question of uh, Craig and Jerry. And this is, uh, which direction are newsstand sales going in the coming months, uh, with or without new pandemic measures in place? I mean, essentially, is there some kind of a roadmap that you can give to publishers about how to uh, plan out the next six months to, to a year? Jerry, you want to go first? You're on mute, Jerry. Thank you. I think this is COVID dependent, but I think some of these channels, as they come back online, bookstores in particular, will have a definite impact on sales. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, you know, newsstand sales were uh, difficult uh, coming into this COVID. I think right now, uh, hopefully, we can take advantage of some of the changes due to COVID and get our sales up. So, I would say, hmm. Steady as she goes would be my prediction. Craig, what do you think? Um, I, I, I would agree. Um, I, I don't think that we're going to see any kind of um, any kind of wide lockdowns, um, which is positive for the industry. 
the reality is the economies in, in North America can't afford to be locked down again. So we aren't going to see that. So sales of magazines and books will continue. Um, I think that the growth in the SIP and bookazine market is going to continue to, to rise. So the, their share of the overall dollar sales are going to increase. And again, um, there doesn't seem to be much price resistance uh, from consumers. If they want that product, they're willing to pay for it. Um, so that's basically what I would say. Okay, great. Well, let's hear from Glenn Schutz to uh, learn of any questions that have been uh, fed through the uh, question feature on the platform. Thanks, Tim. Yep, we've got a couple, uh, and we'll go quick. I know we're up against the time. Uh, this one's for Melanie, I think. Uh, why, why is Canadian Heritage making the switch from the emphasis on circulation to emphasis on content? Thanks for the question. Um, so uh, really quickly, um, this switch uh, gradual shift over a period of five years is in uh, response to um, a very general uh, um, program evaluation that occurs um, to all government programs in Canada every four or five years. So the CPF underwent this you know, very standard program evaluation. Um, one of the things they found was that the um, number of recipient magazines um, in the CPF, so in that $55 million budget segment, um, were steadily declining year over year. Um, and this was um, specifically, I think this was reflective of the changes and the disruption that um, was happening in the industry and happened still. This, so this review was done back in 2014-15. You have to remember with government programs, um, yes, they obviously want to ensure that the program remains effective for the stakeholders that the program funds. But the other lens, the really, really important lens that the bureaucrats use is value to Canadians um, is the program. Because remember, the program is, um, that is funded by the tax base. It's, it's taxpayer dollars. So when they're evaluating a program, they're looking through that lens of is this giving Canadians, the Canadian taxpayer in this case, value for money? So when you're sitting around that table in Ottawa and you've got a recipient list that kind of keeps declining, um, you need to ask yourself why you need to make some changes. So the shift from CERC to content um, is um, really um, in order to make the program more responsive to the changes that are happening in the industry and ultimately, I think, to deliver more value to Canadian taxpayers. So Focusing, um, if you think of it kind of as a math equation, understanding that content is the constant in the equation. You know, people will publish content, assuming we all stay in this business, people are going to publish content no matter what. The variable in the equation is the platform. Um, is it print? Is it digital? Is it a combination of both? Um, and the, the program as it currently exists, as we all know, it can only respond to print. So it's actually treating platform as the constant, which is an error, right? So at a very kind of high policy level, this move is about um, moving that, shifting that constant away from publishing platform to the real constant, I think, in all of this, which is, which is the creation and publishing of that content regardless of the platform. So um, it's it's functioning in a way that it's changing the program in a way that will make the program responsive um, to whatever platform 
publishers are publishing on it. I should also mention, it's a very my very last point, um, they are opening up um, as part of this transition a very small budget um, to fund digital only magazines. So magazines that are fully 100% online and have no print component. You can rest assured it's a small part of the budget, but they are heading in that direction. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this BPA University podcast. For more BPA University podcasts, visit iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.